Welcome to Live with Greg or Live with Greg, depending on semantics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Season seven of Live with Greg. I'm here with Dr. Leslie Purchase. Hi. Hello. <laughs> and um, we met because you reached out to the community saying you were looking for opposing thoughts to your own and we met with the medical western medicine yeah which it found out we really worked that different <laughs> that was a common theme actually a lot of the people that I ended up meeting with um, well maybe I should back up and explain a little bit of what, what that was about so I put a post on Nextdoor saying if you know I've come to this decision that I have these beliefs and I don't ever really challenge them and maybe I should do that because most of us are wrong about most things most of the time and so I'd like to know how I'm wrong and so I put a call out to the community here are three things that I think and if you disagree with me I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee and you can tell me your your view on things not necessarily why I'm wrong but that's that's an oversimplification what I wanted to hear was people's views and how do they came to those views um you know, I told my husband after meeting with, with someone who had a, we had a great conversation, but I didn't learn a lot about him personally. And at the end of the conversation, I said to my husband, you know, I, I think I'm a story whore. Like I felt I'm left wanting. I want to know more about his story because I would meet with people and they would be so generous with telling me their stories and how they kind of came to their beliefs. Um, that was something that, that was really, really great. Um, so yeah, I would say let's, let me buy you a cup of coffee or tea or whatever, and we can sit and talk about how you how you think. And one of them was Western medicine versus traditional medicine, or versus like alternative, alternative or traditional medicines. And alternative makes it sound like <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> hocus pocus. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, um, and then abortion was was another another one, and then capital punishment was the third one. Um, yeah, so that was that was my little experiment, and I met a lot of really great people doing it, and I and I really did expand my view and thinking on a lot of things. I think you know we were talking about this a little bit before we started, but what I what I realized is that there's this spectrum of beliefs on most of these very complex topics, and when we are, are separated from each other by a screen or a newspaper. We, it's very easy to portray people as being on the other side, as all being exactly the same mind on the other side. And what was interesting was to see the diversity of views of people on both sides, right? You know, on your side, you think, oh, well, we have this very detailed and nuanced opinion, and that's why we believe this. But the other side, they're crazy. They're just all a bunch of fill in the blank. Um, and so it was, it was nice to be reminded that, of course, there's a wide spectrum of belief on both sides, and that most of us are actually closer than we would think just based on if you have to say your position versus delineating what your belief systems are and what your values are and what leads you to these things. Most people are the same, right? We, we all kind of want to live happy, useful, productive lives with people that we love. And so if you start from that, it's, it's, you find you have a lot more in common than you, than you would think. 
Did you said you met with about a dozen people? Yeah. Was and there was no one in that group that you walked away from going, Well, that was a car wreck. Uh no. No. I think um that's not to say that I didn't have difficult conversations, but I was so grateful and so so touched by everybody's willingness to meet me that that went a long way. There were there were definitely people that said things that that triggered me, um, and which is one of the reasons that I'm I'm doing this as well, right? It was an exploration of why am I triggered by that? Like what 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 is that bringing up for me that I maybe need to look at, right? Um, which was an interesting exercise, and and so I, I you know I'm not good at that, <laughs> you know it's, it's hard to it's hard to hear something that challenges something you feel strongly about or, or maybe is offensive to to what you think um, and not go down that rabbit hole but to try and stay open to try and listening to what they're saying anyway regardless of getting stuck on on that one piece of it um, so there were a couple of conversations that uh, by the end of it I was pretty exhausted because I was listening to people say things that I just frankly disagreed with and some things I found offensive. And so, you know, but in the, in the days and weeks after, kind of coming, coming back to thinking about why I found that offensive and why, you know, what, where they were coming from and what was it that triggered that inside me, I think is a useful exercise. Um, doesn't necessarily change my opinion about it, but it's a useful exercise to kind of figure out like why why did that particular phrase hurt so much, or what you know what was it about that that belief that kind of triggered your yeah so I, there were some harder conversations, um, but I I really was grateful to everybody who met with me, and I really I felt connected to everybody who was willing to do this thing with me I mean you know I was just some stranger saying hey let me buy you a cup of coffee which is I don't know it's not you know that's I probably wouldn't do that (laughs) well you did (laughs) yeah I mean it's yeah I thought it was a really it was a really tender thing that people agreed to meet with me so I really appreciated that you know the most interesting thing not the most interesting thing an interesting thing surprised the hell out of me everybody ordered a different drink no one had a duplicate drink what do you mean like like every so i, I you met with 12 tried to people. keep notes on on most of my meetings right but i i referred to people by their drink order i mean i would write in it but i, I thought in conversations with i kind of wanted um, to protect yeah that's a very good idea so i would so double latte. refer to them with, by their drink orders right like he, he would you know when i went out with um you know hot chocolate no marshmallows he said this and so that was sort of my way of referring to people and i thought well that's dumb because there's going to be a couple of people that order the same drink not no, the same. So I mean, there were some that were close one was hot chocolate with marshmallows and one was hot chocolate without marshmallows but Nobody ordered the exact same drink. That's brilliant. It was, I was, I was blown away by the diversity of coffee drinks in Marin. That's really wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. It's a little thing, but it really just underscores this 
this notion that of course we are all separate and unique wonderful beings right that of course not everyone likes the same things that you like and not everyone is looking for the same things that you're looking for which is sort of the whole point of the exercise for me was to break me out of my belief system and, and thinking that everyone should share my belief system yeah what's immediately apparent is the duality because you said one thing you learned is ultimately everyone's a lot closer than these absolutes yes. are making out to be and here you're sharing this very diverse aspect yes. which is so uh, well we're all we're all complex and unique people but we all share the same kind of life goals it, you know it's it's about whether you look at people from the 10,000 foot view or from the 10 foot view you know, the 10-foot view, we're all very different and unique, but the further back you go, the, the more globally you look at people, the more alike we all are. You know, and I think, and I, I don't think there's, those two things are irreconcilable. And I think they're, they're both important to recognize. The gentleman I was telling you about earlier that has met with clans people. Yes, yeah. One of the things he said is that That which we don't know, in, in essence, our ignorance mm -hmm. creates fear, and out of that is the danger. That's yes. where. Yeah. So, did you experience a healing in the energy in you that is that knee-jerk, triggered? Wow. Yeah. I don't know if I did because I'm not that advanced yet, but I think I took a step towards that. And right, maybe that was all I could do. Uh, I think I think the first step is to just recognize it in ourselves, and it's hard to do that because I think previously, if someone says something that I found offensive or upsetting or just plain false, my immediate mental construct would be to to make that judgment. Like that's that's you're not informed. That's not that's not correct. You're you just haven't experienced enough to. And instead of doing that, I, you know, when you do that, then you're at this position of like superiority, moral superiority. Um, and, and so instead of doing that, I, I kind of went, oh, why did, why did that make you so angry? What, you know, what is it about that? It would, what if they don't know it? Why is that making you so angry though? And because I think that there, there's a different answer. And I think if you can recognize what, what it is about whatever the thing that they've said that makes you so angry is, that's sort of the first step to figuring out what you're saying. <clears throat> Healing that wound and, and becoming a more open person. Yeah. Have you noticed your relationship with your husband and children transformed a bit from... Yeah, definitely. Really? Definitely. So, I mean, part of this project was because my kids are getting to be teenagers. I have two teenagers now and my youngest is only a couple years away. And as they have become teenagers I realize sadly what they don't need from me is my experience and my advice you would think like this is what we're supposed to do as parents to teach them here was my experience you need not suffer because I suffered for you on your behalf you can just listen to what I have to say and follow my advice and everything will be good but that's just it's a fugazi they don't listen to they don't even if they do listen to you, they want to make mistakes on their own. What, what they want is for you to listen to what their experience is. And it's, 
to be frank, completely different than what I, my experience was and what I think my parents' experience was was probably closer to my experience than my experiences to their experience. I think the pace of change in our society is going so rapidly that it's almost as though two generations have passed between my childhood and their childhood. Just the volume of information alone that they're having to deal with on a day-to-day basis is unlike anything that I experienced growing up. And so I think where I can be of most value to them is just listening to them. And that's super hard as it turned out for me. And so having the practice of sitting with people and listening to them and, and listening with an open heart and with love was really good practice for me with the kids. And not to mention, it was, you know, we had some really good conversations about these things as well. My, my oldest son, Joe, is probably the one that was the most, um, the most connected to this whole project. Mm. You know, and we would kind of talk about the people that we were going to meet, and he would, he would always be excited. And, um, and there were a couple of people that I was a little bit nervous to meet because... For whatever reasons, I had made these prejudgments about them based on things that they had written. or And it was really interesting. Every time I had a negative prejudgment, obviously, it was wrong. <laughs> and I would come home and I would think, I'm so glad that I was wrong. Because, you know, like in general, my view of the world is that it's a beautiful and safe place. And people are trying their best and everyone wants to be good right everyone wants to be seen as good and everyone wants to do good and I was happy that 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 was sort of reinforced by this project because that's kind of the world that I want my kids that's kind of the way I want my children to see the world as well so I would go to these things like okay well you know if if I'm not home in in three hours (laughs) I go all right I'm gonna go I'm gonna go meet this cranky person and we're going to see and I would come home and say, you know this, that person was a beautiful beautiful soul and we had a great conversation and and she taught me something and I hope that I taught her something if, if not anything else just that there are people willing to listen to her um, so that was a just that experience of being wrong in front of my kids I think was very valuable so you would discuss with Joe like Oh no, this person's yeah. going to be trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd come back and go, "Oh my god, that was amazing." Yeah. So Joe's witnessing the before and the after. Definitely. Definitely. <clears throat> Have you talked with him about his experience of like being a witness to that or Yeah, you know, we've we've talked about it a little bit. Not not so much that aspect of it though. I, that's a good idea. I should circle back to him and see what he thinks about it. Yeah. Yeah, he's the he's the one that I would sort of uh, read all the emails to or Here's, here's what this person said. Here's what that person said. And, you know, it would, the, another interesting thing where there were, and some of, I would say, the more out there responses were people that ultimately would not meet with me. Huh. They really wanted me to understand their point of view digitally, but not face-to-face. Um, and, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I get that. It's, I'm a stranger. And, but on the other hand, I think it's, it's also maybe just the fear on their part of having their argument be dismantled a little bit or or hearing a point of view that might make them question their remark right there's all this talk right now in our country about all this divisiveness and 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 there's a lot of interesting research being done that shows that if you tell people who believe a certain thing if you give them evidence against it 
instead of making them question their belief, it can often drive them closer to their belief, right? There's a, a kind of um, paradoxical feeling of defensiveness that drives them deeper into their sets of beliefs. Um, so maybe that's what part of what was going on, but yeah, the, there were definitely some people that really wanted to engage online, and I was trying very, very hard to keep it as offline as possible. Online, I really tried to just use it for logistics of meeting. Um, but it was interesting how some people, and some people said they would, but then they just never followed up. And I would say, okay, like, let me, like, what are, what dates work for you? And then it was just silence. Nothing. Yeah, so, it, you know, it was a, it was a really interesting thing. And, you know, maybe I could go back to those people and see if they'd be, I mean, maybe it was just, to be fair, it was Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, it was a busy time of year. And maybe there is some value in going back and, and re-inviting those people because I probably could learn a lot from them as well. I like your idea of a communal effort coming out of this. Yeah, I was really surprised, but probably greater than 50% of the people I met expressed an interest in meeting again as, as part of like a group or getting a group together. Um, particularly the people I met towards the end of the project were, were really looking for kind of a community space to, to meet people and to talk deeply with people beyond just superficial. I mean, we were talking about really deeply held personal belief systems. And I'm not, I can't say I'm surprised by this, but it was pleasant to see that people are really willing to be open and, and want to share their personal views on things and they were really open to listening as well so I think there there's a there is a hunger for people to just have some face-to-face deep conversations with each other so I feel kind of obligated that I kind of I, I kind of opened up this Pandora's box that now I kind of have to see it through so I would like to yeah find a community space for for a group to meet of some sort You mentioned earlier that you think the current state of the medical profession is not something you would encourage your children to walk into. Yeah. I mean, how much of that is just you, when you are inside of a profession, you, you see the downside, and so you don't want your kids to do it. My parents were both teachers, and they, they said, you can be anything you want, but you can't be a teacher. So I think to a certain extent, there's probably some of that. Um, I, I honestly don't see my children as as becoming physicians. I don't. I think they would all be great physicians because I think they're all really genuinely lovely humans, and they are caring kids. They're compassionate children, but I think that their interests and their talents would be better suited somewhere else. But that said, I try not to really say that to them because I don't necessarily want to influence them um, and they're just so young they don't have any idea what they're going to be anyway um, my youngest daughter is the only one that I'm a little bit nervous actually might do it because she has an experience with healthcare when she was young and she talks about it in a way that sounds very similar to the way I used to talk about it and that's she she 
favors me in a lot of ways. And so when she says it, I think, oh, no, she might actually do it. Um, but, I mean, if she if she did it, she would, I'm sure she would be a great doctor. And I think it would be easier for her anyway because when my husband and I were going through it, we didn't have none, no one in our family were physicians. And so we had no kind of guide, and we were really naive and foolish, and we made all sorts of choices just... You know, just because we thought that's this was the way to go, and I think for my daughter having a kind of a guidepost in my husband and I would probably lead her to make better choices and decisions for her. Um, so, in the end, it wouldn't be the end of the world, but I'd rather she not. <laughs> <laughs> How come? Well, I think medicine is 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 changing, and it's. Um, you know, I, I don't know where exactly to lay the blame, but it's it's hard to be it's hard to be a patient nowadays, and it's hard to be a doctor nowadays. There's just dissatisfaction on all sides of the experience. Um, a lot of physicians, in order to make enough money to, on their practice to live, have to see a huge volume of patients, and if they don't see a huge volume of patients, they have to have some other outside source of income. Uh, and and that's been happening for a while, but now it's to the point where we've kind of jumped the shark. And so you go to a doctor and you get five minutes with them and it's very unsatisfying. Or you have to pay out of pocket and go see a physician. You know, we're kind of getting two tiers of medical care. I'm speaking specifically about the San Francisco Bay Area. And our area is a little bit unique in the fact that our expenses here are so high. So the cost of renting an office and employing people is is a little bit different than it would be in a lot of other places in the country. Um, and so that kind of forces you to practice in a way that's not necessarily what you would what you signed up for when you went to medical school. So you're concerned. That's that's unsat. It's an unsatisfying. Right. Is that you royally aren't serving the individual? Exactly. Currency, exactly. That the environment isn't supporting. Right. That's right. And you know the <clears throat> the other option is to go to a place where you're salaried, like a Kaiser or a, a university appointment. And in that case, you don't have as much control over your own patients either. So my husband worked for a little while at Kaiser which was a great experience, don't get me wrong. Um, for him, he operated a lot, and he got very... I mean, he, he's a very good surgeon, and he got a lot of experience operating at Kaiser. But at that time, he was doing surgeries that were relatively specialized and unique, and not many people were doing... He was one of a, maybe a dozen people in the world that were doing these surgeries, which meant that... Other doctors didn't know how to take care of his patients after surgery. So he would do the surgeries, but then other doctors would kind of see the patients and follow up because he was being shuttled towards just operating. And so these patients weren't being taken care of in the way that he wanted them to be taken care of. Um, And ultimately, that's why he left, because he wasn't practicing the quality of medicine that he wanted to practice. And, you know, and I think that was a relatively unique situation. I'm not saying that that's the case for all Kaiser facilities um, but in that situation there wasn't a whole lot of control he had over it so if you want the control then you have the cost issues it's it's complex and it's um, it's not easy and it's not 
you spend a lot of time on things that aren't medicine right now. What is your specialty of medicine? I was a general surgeon, and I uh, was interested in cancer. So that was my... And when you say general surgeon, is that like... Belly. Like what? Well, like the, the most common general surgeries are things that... It's all abdominal surgery, colon surgeries. Um, appendix out. Appendix, gallbladder. It's all solid organs in your belly. So that a general is a general surgeon the abdomen? Yes. And that's it? Surgeon. So like if there was something with the heart, they would go to a heart specialist? So everyone starts out as a general surgeon. Not everyone, I should say. Most surgeons start out in a general surgery program. Um, even if you're going to be an orthopedic surgeon or a urologist or some of these other specialists, you generally do at least one or two years of general surgery, and then you move on to your specialty. Um, or at least a handful of rotations. So orthopedic surgery actually is its own. But urology starts at general surgery. Neurosurgery, I think they, they were their own, but they had general surgery rotations. It's sort of the springboard to everything else. Um, but if you go into general surgery, then you can kind of have this diversity of you could become a laparoscopic surgeon, you could become a breast surgeon, you could become a cancer surgeon, you could become a colorectal. But it all sort of starts from general surgery. So... Um, Cancer was my interest. And you were doing that before you had children? Yes. Yeah. I left medicine to have kids. So you and your husband were in a place and consciously you're like, okay, we can do this. Yeah. You know, it was just kind of one of those moments where you're all of a sudden see your life with clarity and you think, oh, I'm definitely on this path that I thought I wanted to go on, but there are consequences to this path. And... This is kind of what I meant before when I said my husband and I made these sort of naive choices because we didn't have anyone guiding us through medical school and residency. So we kind of thought, well, we'll go to medical school and when I take my fellowship off to do research for for, uh, oncologic surgery, I'll have a baby then and then we'll just flip-flop taking off years off. And and then this one day I kind of looked around at the people that I most admired, the people that I considered my mentors, and not a one of them had a good marriage or a good relationship with any of their children. And it was a huge wake-up call for me that this is kind of the path that I'm going down. These are the people that I professionally admire a great deal, and they all really struggle in their personal lives. And I could see that. You know, my, parent, my husband and I had been married for a short time, and, and we had not spent very many evenings together because we were on call. I was on call every third night. He was on call every third night. They just didn't sync up. So it was, it was a complicated thing. And we actually talked about getting a dog. The, the dog that I was saying is the, the first dog that we got. And there was no way that we could get a dog because it wouldn't be fairer to the dog to be left alone all the time. And it was like a lightning bolt hit. And I was thought, I mean, I'm not sure, but I think kids are even more labor intensive than dogs. So if we can't get a dog, how are we going to have kids? And I realized, like, one of us has to quit. And since I'm the one that biologically has to have the babies, it made more sense for me to be the one to quit. And so it was really as simple as that. And once, once I made that decision, I, I, it, was, uh, it was fairly straightforward and easy to do. 
That was it. The dog. And then I quit. Two weeks later, we got a dog. <laughs> and six months later, I was pregnant with Joe. Wow. All right. So, your relationship with your husband... Because um, potentially him still being in the work field, yeah, same problems that you just mentioned, him connecting to you, him connecting to his definitely, family. definitely. So we've we've made a conscious and thoughtful decisions at each kind of decision tree. Once once we got to that point, we we were like, okay, we're we're on to we're on to your medicine. We see, we see you sucking the lives out of people. So we, were, we kind of were trying to be more deliberate and conscious with our choices with his work life. Um, and so I think now we're, we're, we're really at a place where we're seeing the ball very well. He, he's working for himself, and he's kind of the master of his schedule. We, we look at our calendar. We block out important things. He's coaching my middle son's basketball team. He, coached baseball teams you know we've having having being an orthopedic surgeon also is a little bit more flexible he does a lot of surgeries that are outpatient surgeries um, so he doesn't often have a lot of patients in the hospital and when he does it's not for very long um, which is another reason why it was me that left and not him because his ultimate career is just a, a better lifestyle orthopedic surgery is a much better lifestyle than a cancer surgeon for instance so we've been able to kind of navigate navigate that to to a large extent. Do you think you'll go back to practicing once your children are no. done? No, that ship has sailed. I, I don't think I could, honestly. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a tough thing in some ways. I miss operating and I miss I miss solving problems with my hands, which is what you get to do in the operating room. Uh, but I think that the knowledge that I have from my training and my education was not wasted. And I, I use it quite often. Um, you know, with cancer, I, I myself had cancer and I treated cancer. So that gives me an interesting perspective that I've been able to use to help a lot of people who are going through cancer sort of tangentially, which has been pretty rewarding. And, and frankly maybe more meaningful than I would have had as a, as, a, as a doctor. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that life would have looked like. But The word tangential, what's that word? Tangential. tangential. Uh, so I've, I've it, sort of people come to me and say, hey, I have this person who has just been diagnosed with cancer. You know, it's not necessarily people in my immediate circle. It's okay. sort of one or two steps removed. Um, and I think in some ways it's easier if you have just been diagnosed with cancer and you're full of fear and emotion and it's sometimes easier to talk to a stranger about those feelings than it is a very close loved one because you know if if you're talking to your spouse about all of your fears they're also having a lot of fears and so you kind of want to spare them so having someone who's not necessarily in your immediate circle to talk to and 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 share your concerns and your fears and to kind of unload to can be very helpful for people you said you had cancer? I did, yes. You personally had cancer? Yes. I had breast cancer when I was uh, 32. And so. your youngest had brain cancer and when then, she was yeah. three? So my daughter was six months old. Six months old. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, okay. And then when she was two and a half, she had, uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer. 
So all's well that ends well, though. Everybody's still alive. <laughs> right, and happy and well. Yes, yes. We're Perhaps being a doctor. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> that is the unfortunate side effect of that that I'm concerned about. Because then she wants to be a neurosurgeon. I mean, oh my God, that's like the worst. It's <laughs> lifestyle-wise. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a worst-case scenario for her. <laughs> well, maybe we'll see. Um, yeah, we'll see. Seems like you'd be an uh, excellent health advocate. There's a friend of mine who was a chiropractor, and he semi-retired and became a health advocate. Yeah. And what you're talking about in this day and age, where you've got five minutes with the doctor, yeah, to have someone who's advocating with you, so you've got as much time as needed with that advocate. So when you go into the office, it's this, this, you know. Yeah. You're prepared for that precious five minutes yes I think I think that that is so important I think um, a woman so when I had breast cancer we hired this woman to come and help us because my kids were four two and six months old at that time and when I was going through chemotherapy she came and she would come during the day and kind of take care of the kids and my parents had moved in with us but still I mean they were four two and six months is no joke so she would kind of come in and help with the kids and feed them lunches and clean. I mean, all the things that I couldn't do because I was trying to just survive. Um, she has since gone on to get married and have two kids. And her youngest son, who's six months old right now, I was just diagnosed with hepatoblastoma, which is a pediatric cancer of the liver. And in in this process of now, now they're in a clinical trial, but sort of getting from there is a mass to entrance into this clinical trial you know I was kind of on the phone with her every day what are they saying what are what are our options what is this what's the next step and I do think you know both Rob and I recognize that the fact that we were both doctors really helped us navigate both mine and Olivia's cancer particularly our daughter's cancer because it was not a previously described brain cancer and so no one could really tell us how to treat it we had to kind of figure out how to treat it on our own and not only were people not telling us that they were I should I should back up they actually were telling us they knew how to treat it but it was just bullshit because it had, no one had ever had this before or no one had ever documentedly had this before. Right, right. and so um, there were lots of people who felt very strongly that their method was correct but they all disagreed from each other so, you know, you went to Stanford and they said, don't go, go to UCSF, they'll kill her. And you go to UCSF and they go, well, we know what we're doing here. The guys at Stanford, they're wackadoos. They're going to kill her. And so these are all smart individuals, right? And there's it's not a lot of pediatric neuro-oncologists. And so you're kind of left at this position, like, what the hell do we do? But us both being physicians really allowed us to kind of be comfortable with our ultimate decisions in a way that I think we couldn't have been if we were lay people. And I found that this was happening with Brittany as well. She was she was really struggling with, like, what do we do? How do we make sense of this? How do we advocate without feeling like we're, we're pressuring them or asking too many questions? And so, I mean, I, I agree, getting back to your point about the health advocate, I, I really strongly, you know, I, th- I think one of the best things I do is, is things like this, is help people in similar situations. Um, I couldn't do it on a kind of formal basis. It's, 
it's more like a hobby, <laughs> if you will. I've noticed recently in my life that my propensity to want to be right is like a drug. There's an addictive mm. quality to it. And as we were talking about earlier with communication yeah. and that triggering, that knee jerk, seems to come about from my addiction to being right when it's challenged. And it seems in the medical field, mm -hmm. you know, we hear of doctors with this God complex. Yeah. And, and what you were just mentioning with this diverse doctors, like yeah. no one wants to say, I don't know. Right. And what's interesting, so I just heard um, a gentleman who's a mixed martial art um, fighter. Mm -hmm. And he was, he had a championship fight where he was the challenger. And an MRI was just protocol for yeah. the city they were going to fight in. And these blotches were found on his brain. Mm. And what, what has been found out was that it's the capillaries, I think, create like vines tangled together. There's like sort of a, and, and so they make like this hard little, it's like, on my body I have, you know, these blood, they're called, like, they're not skin tags, but they're when the blood vessel creates a tag, right? Okay. So it's happening. Like a varicose vein, kind of? No. That's more, it's like, a, it is a growth, but, that, so the capillaries are growing beyond normal. Okay. And becoming like vines, so okay. they tangle yeah. into each other and create... Like a nut. And his experience was that most doctors would look at this and just have shock and say, You can't fight. Yeah. And here's his whole life. There were two doctors he met who were really calm, and he said his experience was first of all, they'd talk with him, yeah. find out who he is, what's going on. They'd say, Well, not sure. Yeah. Um, one doctor has experience actually operating on them and removing mm -hmm. them and his opinion was uh, if there aren't any symptoms right now there's not an issue yeah the classic if it's not bothering you let's not bother it right but part of what again like in this breath of doctors that were involved let's say a dozen yeah. there's two yeah that were the calm like you're talking about that like really they're yeah. not creating drama especially yeah. unnecessary drama so what I hear you saying with the cancer element yeah. especially with your daughter where it wasn't known oh, it was crazy. instead of taking a breath and go well let's see yeah. the immediate knee jerk response is drama yeah and I think you know in the, in the defense of those doctors everyone is I mean, these, these things are life and death, and people generally look to the doctors for guidance, right? So I think in some ways, do you want your doctor to say, I don't know if this is going to work? I don't, I don't know if that's right either, right? You do, if that's the reality. But so, so here's the thing, though, about our bodies and our minds, and I think there is an element of, if you can really, so, so I, here's another story. I have this this woman who I admire very much. Uh, she does a lot of work in cancer, including a, a charity called Nancy's List. 
like 15 years ago, she was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, which by any measure is a, is a relatively fatal, not too many people survive stage four ovarian cancer past five years. And she was with this physician who said to her, you know what, you can, we can do this and I am with you. He was bullshitting. I mean, I, there's, there's nothing about her medical scenario that really said that she should still be alive. And I really think there was something to this belief in him. She sort of attached to that, like, I think he, he's going to help me stay alive. And, you know, I, I don't have an explanation for it, but I think there is something of value to feeling like someone believes in you and someone believes in your ability to survive. And I, but I hear what you're saying about arrogance and talking out of turn. That's not right either. But I don't know where, where that line is. I, see, I understand why some doctors feel it's their job to be sure and to give people hope, right? I think they see it as like, I'm, I'm going to tell you this with conviction because I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it's the best thing. And I truly believe each of those doctors advocating for their treatment deeply felt it was the best treatment. Again, I think, you know, were they right? No. I mean, you can't have two diametrically opposed arguments and both be right. Um, you know, like Christians and Jews can't both be right. <laughs> Jesus is one or the other. I mean, it's, it's a binary thing. So someone has to be wrong or maybe both are wrong. And maybe they're both right. Maybe it really is maybe. the belief that is a strong element it of could the healing. Be. It could be. I don't really know. I don't really know. But for us, I remember thinking this really makes it a lot harder and this really complicates things. Until we kind of realized, you know, my husband, God bless him, he would get up every morning at 4 a.m. and go to a Starbucks because we were in the process of moving during this period because we didn't, we didn't think it was cancer. Long story, but initially we didn't think it was cancer. So we were in the process of moving, and he was starting a new practice here. And he would go to Starbucks at like 4 a.m. and do this research. He was basically doing his own pediatric neuro-oncology fellowship at 4 o'clock in the morning every day. And what he came to realize is that nobody really knows that's the bottom line. There's just not enough data on any of these things. And so if no one knows, then it's up to us to just kind of go with what our instincts are telling us. And that's ultimately what we did, including not completing her treatment. So she did three, we did surgery first, obviously, and then we did three rounds of regular chemotherapy and then three rounds of something called myeloablative chemotherapy, which is sort of the the... Hiroshima of chemotherapy. It, it's so toxic that it kills all of your cells, including your stem cells. And so you have to give them stem cells back with a bone marrow transplant to kind of rescue them. So we did three rounds of that as well. And then at the end of that, they wanted to radiate her whole brain and spine, which would have really fundamentally changed who she was. The, the bone marrow transplants were enough of a risk in terms of changing who she is. And at that point, we said, okay, you know, we're done. We're going to take our daughter home. And we got a lot of pushback from the radiation oncologist who basically said, like, you're, you're putting your daughter's life at risk, and if she dies, it's on you. I remember she said that to us, and I was like, oh, I can't believe you just said that to us. That's, that really sucks because I don't think our, our decision is not an unreasonable one. But you saying that really puts 
a lot of a lot of it's it, nothing good can come from saying that. Yeah, you know that that's that really says a lot about her own fears and insecurities about her practice and whatever. But um, yeah, so we we decided at that point to just take her home, and you know we've been we've been fortunate. It, it, a lot of a lot of this stuff is just luck as well. Um, yeah. Was the growth on the exterior of the brain? No, it was in her temporal lobe. It was mm-hmm. in the temporal lobe as well. It's sort of uh, just 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 behind your above and behind your ear on the side of your head. It's the it's the um, it it is where on the left side where her tumor was. It's where your language center is. So we basically took out a portion of well the piece of the tumor is not was not her language center it was tumor so we took right. the tumor out but it was right adjacent to her language center so we were a little bit concerned that she would have a hard time with verbal abilities um, she has no problems with that oh, <laughs> she's awesome. yeah she is that is not that is, that is not her problem <laughs> so all's well that ends well yeah but that's that's what's going on in that wow. that part of the brain wow. but get, getting back to your point I do think there is there is like a a bit of a high that you get from being right and i've noticed this in my own life as well that there's this deep desire to be right or to be seen as being intelligent and accomplished and correct and it's and it's just not so i mean i think really you know i think it was mark twain i'm paraphrasing who said it's not what you don't know it's what you know that just ain't so <laughs> and i and i'm realizing more and more as i get older that most of what I believe is probably wrong, and it's and it's at one at one point it's quite frightening, and at another point it's quite liberating. Um, because if 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 a lot of what you think is wrong, then maybe you don't have to be so attached to being right, and maybe you can ask questions more and and talk less, which is also part of this exercise was about that having the opportunity to just ask questions of people and and listen to what people's experiences and stories are because we all have these incredibly different stories and backgrounds and they're all amazing like I said I'm a story whore so yeah, yeah I love that term <laughs> that's, that's what especially I am especially coming from a female yeah right. no, that's what I am <laughs> do you really love stories I do uh, I do I mean I'm, I'm and I, I realize I always have I'm an avid reader I I read a lot of books and I enjoy talking to people and I think you know I think a large part of my drive to medicine was that um, and it's particularly in cancer people have when you when you are going to let somebody put their hands on you and solve a problem in your body you are very vulnerable right by definition sur- surgery is an incredibly vulnerable thing that someone is willing to be naked on a table and allow you to cut them open. That's that's an incredible sacrifice, an incredible gift that someone is giving to you. So you kind of owe them to listen to who they are, right? And really figure out what what they need from you and listen to their story. So I think that's why medicine and surgery in particular was such a good fit for me because it really gave me this avenue to listen to people's stories and to to meet a lot of people and in medicine everyone gets sick you meet everybody you know I mean 
everybody ends up there (laughs) at one point or another right it's 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 the it's the full spectrum of humanity and there are not that many jobs where you really interact with the full spectrum of humanity you think about it I mean really just not that many did you have any experiences when you were practicing of a healing happening and you were part of the process but you can't explain what really healed oh yeah definitely definitely I mean there were people that had no business surviving that survive right and there are also people that had no business dying who die and I, I think any physician who's who's being honest will say anyone who knows anything about the human body knows enough to know that we don't know anything about the human body in, the, in let alone how our minds and bodies are connected and control each other and I mean the, it is so complex that most of Western medicine just kind of went goes. I mean, we, it, it's true. It's it's a very it's a very complex system. Just physiologically, we're very complex, and we have only scratched the surface. I think you know. I I, I often play this game of like in two hundred years, what will we think? Because you go back a couple hundred years, and people believed some pretty crazy shit, right? Yeah. So I I try and think, especially yeah. the witch testing, right? Like, if you drowned, right, right. <laughs> then you were okay. Right. That's what, I mean, like, really, really. So I mean, there, what are the things that we think today that in two hundred years right. people are going to be saying? Can you believe that that's what they thought in in our regular life, but also in medicine? And I think there's a there's a lot of it, and so it's it's an interesting exercise to do every now and then that to realize that what we think we know and what we think of as cutting edge are at some point going to be ancient history and worthless. Okay. So I have this generalization of Western medicine and doctors and that God complex and yeah. and kind of what you were saying before, stoic. Yeah. But you've interacted with a lot of doctors, obviously. Yeah. Do you find that ultimately really they are of that place where like the giant question mark is always there. I don't know. So you have met some where they're just like, they really do have a God complex. I know yeah, this is... Yeah, I, I, I don't know, right? Like, are they... Is that the case or have I just not gotten to know them well enough, right? Because that's a defense as well. Right. Right? I think I've definitely met doctors who you think like, man, that guy's a dick. How, like, why is he even in, in medical school? Like, you know, even in medical school, you, you can see those guys that you're like, <laughs> really? And and I think, though, I thought that at the time. But now as I've gotten older as well, I think, like, what, what were their circumstances growing up? You know, what were the pressures that they felt to go into medicine? Or what are the pressures that society is telling them to do this, even though it's maybe not in their nature? Or they want to go be an artist and they're instead in medical school. Um, you know, I think, you know, a breath of life experience is again changed from this binary that guy's a jerk to what are the other things going on for him and so I think in the practice of medicine when you come across people that seem so abrasive and so removed from themselves let alone from the people that they're taking care of there's more to the story there you know and I'm sure if they let me buy them a cup of coffee and (laughs) tell me all their secrets then I would have a much greater amount of empathy for them and compassion for them. Have you thought about that? Taking this idea? Taking doctors to to coffee? 
Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I think that the problem is there are so many, so many people vying for the doctor's time, right? There are so many asks of doctors these days. Um, I mean, just the sheer volume of paperwork that they have to complete now versus even 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. It's just astronomical. So I, I can't imagine any doctor being willing to do that with me. I really, I really don't. But who knows? Maybe. You're a doctor. You're doing it with me. Yeah, I'm not practicing anymore. Then. <laughs> I know. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up? Or? Mm, I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess you know. It's easy. It's easy to stereotype all kinds of people, right? Doctors included, and this gets back to the coffee drinks, right? Like we're we're more complex and different than 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 we would think. I had this experience this morning, and it reminds me. I've heard it as a Native American saying, story, like short story, where this kid comes to his grandfather, the two wolves, two wolves. right? Yeah. And you talking about the resonance, like when you hear someone say, well, this is on you. If mm-hmm. your daughter dies, that's your thing. Yeah. So someone who I know, and I haven't interacted with for a few years, but they reached out <laughs> and called me a whole lot of horrible things. <laughs> and there was a resonance in me of the reality of that. Yeah. Like me accepting that as real. And I realized I, because there was one moment where I thought, oh, I could just fire back in the same yeah. way. Yeah. And it felt like that would be good. It'd yeah. Be fun. Oh, yeah, that feels so good. Yeah, it'd be kind of fun. So righteous you know? anger is right. the best kind right. of anger. Right. And I was like, oh, I have a choice. Yeah. I, I don't need to choose that. It's so hard to be a grown up, isn't it? It's, I mean, sure. it's so hard. <laughs> I think it's hard to be. A conscious human being, and yeah. children are conscious human beings. I, I personally think that one of the challenges they have is they aren't given space because the adults know better. Yeah, fair enough. That's true. That's true. So just like you realized, best for you to listen to your children. Yeah. But that was a realization. It wasn't something you grew up with where your parents are saying, hey, if you become a mom... No. (laughs) (laughs) No, my parents went the other way. (laughs) Well, see, it's so interesting, too, because I'm doing this thing with this group of people of um, abundance practice for 21 days. Yeah. And uh, one of the tasks was to ask our mother two questions. And I I thought, well, that's interesting that it's to the mother. Yeah. And that does seem there is a connection with abundance and life and joy with our relationship with our mom. And my little sister just turned 50 last Friday, and there was a huge blow-up party at her place in L.A. Um, My mom came up from Nicaragua. And that it really was a blow-up, so it was very fast. I drove down with two of my kids. Yeah party, drove back home, yeah, yeah. I had a moment with my mom, and that moment was us butting heads, right. and, and what was kind of interesting though, is I, because I called my mom with these two questions, right. is 
is my experience like oh I had that experience of butting heads with my mom I can still love my mom like that doesn't have to radiate throughout the next four years or three days or right right yeah I think that's that's a really important point and it's something that I'm working on this idea that you can have conflict and then you can repair that conflict it's not it, the conflict itself isn't toxic it's the it's the associations and attachments we put to it that become that make it toxic right. um, which is also something I'm trying to teach my children that like you know any relationship worth having is going to have conflict in it and it doesn't have to be terrible it can be you can grow from it you cannot just stagnate or circle the drain with it yeah. so can I ask what are the two questions um what is your most painful or disappointing thing in your life mm-hmm. right now? And what is your greatest dream that you haven't fulfilled yet? Oh, those are great questions. Yeah. Oh. Is your mom alive? She is, but she has Alzheimer's. You could still ask her. Yeah. Might be surprised, but. Yeah. Is she in the area? No, she's in. Uh, she's back in Western Pennsylvania. Okay. Do you call her on the phone, or is it really not? No, I do. I, I do. We try and FaceTime. I find that to be the most effective way to communicate with her. Yeah. Now that just opened up a Pandora's box of thoughts with Alzheimer's. Yeah. Because I read once when I was growing up a long time ago that people towards the end of their life often relive aspects of their youth that weren't completed or something. They're kind of like dotting the I's and crossing the T's so that when they pass, there's a completion in their life of Hmm. why they were here. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Is that that with Alzheimer's or without? Is that sort of just the baseline? I think it's the baseline. Yeah, I think the Alzheimer's distorts that to a certain extent. Well, like my great aunt, I forget, I don't know the disease she had, but when she was engaged, she got this disease that usually people, she lived to 104. Wow. Yeah, so this is, you know, I don't know what year this was yeah. she was engaged, but it was a long time ago. Anyway, usually people died. Yeah. And she broke off the engagement. And she was never with anyone as long as I knew her. And, oh, my goodness. And she, like this, like it affected yeah. her speech, but she was brilliant, very kind, wonderful wow. woman. Toward like the last couple, I'd think the last year of her life, she would be talking to my mom. My mom was primary caregiver, yeah. anyway, about the wedding and who was coming, yeah. and so it oh, seemed like yeah, you know, that she was she was going back right. to that. And I think people would say that's Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, that's, that that's, sounds like dementia, yeah. Right. But <clears throat> I guess I have uh, um, a negative semantic with that word dementia and Alzheimer's. Like it's a dismissive quality. It's yeah. dismissing that person's experience is unreal. Yeah. And I think really there is a reality that that person's playing out that's important to them. Yeah, there there is. I agree. I agree with you. There is a lot of of reality in it. Um, it's part of what makes it painful at times. So, my husband's grandmother also died of Alzheimer's, and towards the end, 
I found the most painful thing would be, you know, you kind of go back and relive certain parts of your life, and you you lose the memory of how they ended up. So she would think that her brother, for instance, was in the room with her, or that he was coming to visit her. And and maybe this is about how we treat people with Alzheimer's and, you know, how we should maybe... I think that some of the thinking has changed since then. You know, it used to be that they would challenge the person and say, no, that, you know, Uncle John died in 2007. And you could see it was as though she was hearing that news for the very first time. And so she was grieving the loss of her brother on a regular basis, which is just, I mean, it, I don't, you can't design a torture that's worse than that, right? That's, that's completely crazy. And I think now the caregiving model has sort of shifted towards just saying kind of, you know, he's, I don't think he's coming today. Or, you know, not necessarily con- kind of going with it a little bit instead of confronting the reality of because you're right to a certain extent if that's her experience right now what, what possible benefit is there to correcting her yeah. you know feeling like because in, in 10 minutes she's not going to remember that she thought that John was coming you know it's it's a it's a tricky thing in some ways you know she was sort of at the end during during that phase and it's a little bit simpler it's a trickier thing now with my mom who's sort of with Alzheimer's you have periods of lucidity as well and so there are moments when she is sort of back and and is realizing a little bit more and more how how she's starting to lose things um and it's the thing that's scary about alzheimer's is it's just things are gone it's not like i can't remember the word or i can't remember i put my keys it's you don't remember the experience you you know it would be like if two days later two days from now you called me and said hey you know thanks so much for the podcast and i said what podcast Right. you were never at my house we never sit, sat and had this conversation it's that it's that level um, and that's that's devastating to, to find out that that's what's happening to you so she's still in the phase where she's just finding out that that's happening to her um, so it's, it's it's a tough thing I don't know I don't know really what the what the solution is but I think you're right I think we have to honor what their experience is moment to moment and sort of just make it as ease that experience as much as possible within the context of their disease and if that means kind of going back and circling back to something that was unfinished in their life you know maybe there's maybe there's a value in that yeah I don't know it's, it's complicated stuff for sure it's it's not it's not a great it's not a great disease. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather we didn't have it. <laughs> well, I don't think any disease is really welcomed. <laughs> yeah, but there are some that are like they're not really trying hard. <laughs> it's okay. The common cold, right. like, right? Oh, come on! Is that all you got? The cold is like, oh, you should just take a couple mm. days off. Okay, you're right. Maybe you have something to teach me. <laughs> Maybe what's going on in China right now is like the common cold all beefed mm. up. Like, oh, you think I'm nothing? Jealous? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. It's, it's, it's interesting. Well, you know, that's another thing. Like, here's this thing going on in China that's yeah. a completely new unknown, creating a lot of drama. Yeah. And I just read today, now the deaths are up to 500. Yeah. That's what I read today. 
What I've heard is influenza in the United States every year has thousands of yes. deaths. Yes, exactly. So exactly. again, like, our, it really makes me wonder if a human being is essentially hardwired for the negative, the drama, yeah. the elements of, that create separation. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's true to a certain extent. I mean, it, it makes sense. Like, evolutionarily speaking, I think feeling love was a nice to have. But like, if you weren't scared of the right things, your genes weren't going to make it. And that's not to say that love is not important. I think there's an equally valid argument to be made for love and cooperation, allowing humanity to get to where we are today. Um, but I think you know the fear response is a super important. Thing that we have. It's our amygdala is the reptilian brain, right? It's the really ancient don't get eaten brain. And I think in modern life, um, you know, I don't I don't know if this is the case or not, but this is kind of how I, I envision it, that if the amygdala is sort of a pressure valve and every now and then you have a real threat and it kind of releases the pressure a little bit. Like the tiger is stalking you in the woods and you successfully escape and it kind of releases like okay that that was a threat and I navigated that threat in our modern life we have all of these things that that trigger our potential threats but aren't actually potential threats you know it's I I posted something on Facebook and only three people liked it (laughs) or uh, you know oh my gosh my kid I talked to some other mom and she went to this thing about all these summer programs for her kids that she's going to sign them up for. Oh my God, I didn't even know that was a thing and I'm not going to sign up my kid and he's going to be, you know, all of these sort of subpar threats, but they, they are stimulating our amygdalas nonetheless. And so we have this constant sort of hyped up concern, which I think is, is very much based in important evolutionary Traits, but in the modern world, we're just not under threat in a real way. You know, most of us can can get adequate food, clothing, and shelter. Um, there's not too many things that can really kill us in the wild anymore, and we're just, by and large, very safe from the the threats that our brain is adapted to. We're not necessarily safe, but we're safe from the threats that our brain is the most well adapted to. Um, and so, so I think there is this. I think the things like the coronavirus. Um, I don't want to say hysteria, but drama maybe are. It's like oh here here this might be a real threat. This is the thing that we were worried about happening. When the yeah in reality I don't know that it will ultimately be the kind of thing that is a real threat. Is I mean it is a, certainly a real threat. It's a it's a significant thing, but. As you said, influenza kills thousands of people a year in our country. You know, medication errors kill tons and tons of people in our country. I mean, there are there are real car accidents. You know, people are afraid of flying in airplanes, but getting in driving in cars is probably the riskiest things any of us do all day. Um, there are these real threats to our safety that we've kind of habituated to, and we would probably be better served if we at least understood where the real threats were. And how we can mitigate those, but that's you know that's not interesting. People don't want to. It's not it's nothing new. 
you know. I have faith that um, our true nature is coming together, peace, love. And that that's what you experienced with your experiment with reaching out on next door. And how you said, like, at least half the people expressed, can we do this more? Yeah. I, I, think, I think so, too. I think humans' ability to cooperate, it's extraordinary. I mean, no other species has been able to accomplish even close to what humanity has with the, co- the cooperation. Um, you know, you, you can make an argument that there was a lot of coercion, not cooperation, but I really think it's, it's cooperation that has advanced society more than anything. And, and when you really look at it, it's, it's sort of collaboration that's continuing to advance society. Like, look at a project like Wikipedia, for instance. I mean, that's, that is such an interesting, an interesting coming together of people that have really no incentives to, to do this work and yet produce this incredible body of work and devoting hours and hours to it. It's, I think... I think we're we're just scratching the surface of what is possible now that people are able to be connected over large geologic or, or geographic distances. Um, I I really have a lot of hope for the future because I do I do think our cooperative nature will, in the end, win out over the fear. You know, it's the it's the classic. I think people act from fear or from love. I think every action in the world comes down to fear or love. Um, and I think I think we're moving more towards love. It maybe doesn't feel that way all the time. It's maybe not a linear progression, but I think the march of human history has definitely moved in the direction of love. <laughs>